Hi, welcome. I am Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. I have with me on today's panel two of our brilliant attorneys, Jessica Lee and Kevin Andrews, who primarily focus in the employment-based green card department. Our topic for today is I-140, an overview and recent trends in processing or adjudication. And as most of you know, the I-140 is the second main stage in the green card processing in an employment-based green card process where we have labor certification as the first stage, I-140 is the second stage, and then of course either the I-485, which is the adjustment, or the consular processing, which is stage three. So Kevin, in connection with the I-140 process, what's generally considered the overview or the purpose for the I-140 petitions? Thank you, Sheila. Um, yeah, I think it's really important to really understand as a, as a basic framework uh, going into filing these petitions what the actual purpose of the filing the I-140 petition, just to get an idea to, uh, to see what USCIS is looking for when adjudicating these petitions. So uh, the main purposes for the I-140 petition are to prove that the beneficiary actually meets the requirements for the position that was set forth in the labor certification that was, should have already been certified at this point of the green card process. Also, the uh, USCIS is looking to make sure that the petitioner is actually a, quote, bona fide employer that's capable of demonstrating it has the ability to pay the required wage for the position. And of course, that, per, uh, that wage has been set forth in the uh, labor certification stage, stage one. Finally, uh, the purpose of the I-140 petition is to show that the beneficiary, the person uh, who's being sponsored for the green card position, actually has immigrant intent intent to permanently reside in the United States and an intent to work in the proffered position. Um, so that's the purpose of the I-140 petition. So uh, I thought maybe, Jessica, we could talk about some of the uh, some of the documents that's required in the filing process. Sure, absolutely, Kevin. So with the I-140 petition, obviously the main thing that you have to file with that petition is the actual form I-140, which is the immigrant visa petition form. Along with that, that I-140 petition does um, require a filing fee which is currently $580 so that is a filing fee that's um, made payable to the US Department of Homeland Security and filed along with the I-140 petition. And remember these fees can keep increasing or decreasing all they the time do. based on USCIS's you know just issuing some kind of an update or an up you know where they will yeah, they, they, the USCIS once in a while will kind of look at the fees that they're uh, requesting for various petitions to just make sure that it, it's a balance between, you know, covering the costs that they need for adjudication and having that staff of people um, to adjudicate the case and work on the case. So, yeah, we do see once in a while the fees do go up. And I think what employers really should focus on is to make sure that they, you know, even if you just Google USCIS filing fees, you'll get uh, the USCIS landing page for what the current fees are, just to make sure that petitions aren't being rejected just for, you know, the wrong amount. Right. So along with that I-140 petition, you also do need that labor certification that you've had certified. Um, right now it would be the PERM ETA 9089 form. Make sure that that's signed though. So make sure the employer signs on his page, employees that's being sponsored signs on their page. And of course, if you have an attorney like the Murthy Law Firm who's filing your case will obviously sign where the attorney And you want the original to be yes, filed. Yes, it has to be the original signed forms. Um, and, you know, they'll be signed the date when you actually prepare the I-140 petition, so there's no backdating the signed forms. The, the Department of Labor does understand that obviously it was, the labor certification was filed online and, and, uh, and right now is when you'd actually sign the forms. Um, 
In addition, you're going to have an I-140 petitioner support letter. So the company will, will provide a letter that explains what the company does, the company background, what the job is, what the job duties are that the beneficiary will be working in, and also how the beneficiary qualifies for the position. So what their education and experience background is. And it's basically a letter confirming what, you know, the position that was listed on labor certification uh, for the I-140 petition, which is now being filed with the USCIS. Along with that, you, you of course need supporting evidence, so evidence of the beneficiary's education and experience documents, again, to prove that that employee meets the requirements for the position. Um, and finally, you do want to include the fi company's financial documentation to prove that the company is in, uh, does have the ability to pay, uh, pay the wage that was offered on that uh, PERM application, the labor certification. Okay, great. Thank you, Jessica. So in general, Kevin, what kind of entity or person is allowed to be the petitioner or sponsoring employer or entity to file the I-140 petition? Sure. So generally speaking, uh, U.S. employers are going to be the petitioner in, the, uh, in an I-140 filing, uh, but there are some classifications that permit the foreign national him or herself to self-petition, uh, meaning no job offer is required from a particular employer in order to file that particular I-140 petition. Uh, the, the, the categories where this is applicable would be the EB-1 classification based on extraordinary ability, and those, generally speaking, are the foreign nationals that are top 5% of their, their field, uh, just the best of the best, the Nobel laureates uh, kind of uh, caliber applicant. And also EB-2 uh, EB uh, those who, who get EB-2 classification and are able to obtain a national interest waiver uh, based on the, that filing, those individuals also do not need to have a, a job offer in order to have an I-140 filed. They're able to self-petition. Well, that sounds great, except I guess since this uh, conference primarily deals a lot with employers, I guess we should only be so lucky as employers to have all our Nobel laureate employees <laughs> vying to be with us and with our companies as we continue to grow. That's right. And as a, as a practical matter, Sheila, a lot, most of our cases, overwhelming uh, amount of our cases are the ones where the U.S. employer is acting as the petitioner and the beneficiary is just merely the one benefiting from their petition being filed. Right. And a quick clarification also with the EB-2 National Interest Waivers or NIW cases as we call them. Mm -hmm. It can be the employee, but it could also be an employer filed petition. And it's fairly common to see one or the other That's right. uh, to do that. And Kevin, in terms of premium processing, is that an option? Is that available? I know it's not available for NIWs, um, but it's available in other categories. And when is it available and when is it not available? Sure. Uh, generally speaking, definitely an option for the I-140 filing, as long as you're filing it with the original signed uh, labor certification. Jessica had mentioned before that the original signed labor does need to be included with the I-140. Um, as, as employers may often know, sometimes uh, cases are refiled. Um, as a strategic matter, so sometimes copies can be included of the labor in a refiling situation, but those cases could not be premium processed. Uh, but again, the general rule is that I-140 petitions can be premium processed. There is a form that needs to be included. It's called an I-907 form. And also the and it's the same thing that's used in H one B. That's also. right. Yeah. Same 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 form. Mm -hmm. uh, also same processing fee for that service as in the H one B context. One thousand two hundred twenty five dollars currently. Although again, employers should always check the USCIS website for the current fee, because uh, that's something that did go up here in the last couple of years. Um, and what you get for the premium processing is an adjudication or at least a request for evidence being issued within fifteen calendar days. Um, strategically, that might be a good consideration for some employers who are trying to keep their employees here who are on H-1B status, but 
perhaps they're at their six year or getting ready to exhaust their, their six years of time. One of the bases for extending H-1B is if you have a, an approved I-140 petition filed on your behalf by an employer along with a non-current priority date, those individuals can extend their H-1B in three-year increments. So sometimes this might be a strategic consideration in filing or at least at a later time upgrading to premium processing. Wonderful. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, Jessica, uh, it looks like you were about to say something else and you're welcome to pitch right. in, but I was going to ask you about the education experience evidence <laughs> that we need to submit along with the ability to pay kinds of issues, but did you want to discuss something about I the I just premium? want to make a note of the premium processing because a lot of people ask me. Premium processing is a request, so it doesn't mean that your petition will absolutely be adjudicated in 15 days. It's just if the USCIS decides that, yes, we're going to premium process, they're going to take your money, they're going to take your check, and you'll get either an adjudication or, or an RFE within 15 days. But, you know, if they find, if they don't accept your case for premium processing, they don't, you know, take your money and they don't have to do it within the 15 days. Um, so that's just one little thing that I want to add in there. Do they give back the money? Uh, they're supposed to, but it takes a while. Okay. We can request it. And so. Jessica, mm -hmm. you, the, another point that you reminded me, when they, if an RFE is something that's being issued in response to the, you know, the filing of a case that's premium processed, that RFE actually resets the clock. So once you respond to the RFE, then, then USCIS gets another 15 calendar days from that point. So I just right. want to emphasize that too. Right. So um, back to the education experience evidence, um, just the basic evidence that you can provide to prove your education experience is, of course, copies of your degree certificate, any transcripts or uh, mark sheets that you have, and make sure that you get them for each year that you actually attended the university or the school. Um, and also, if you have a foreign degree, you will have to get a credentials evaluation. So make sure that you get one from a reputable credentials evaluator. Um, for your experience, obviously experience letters from the company on company letterhead signed by an, an authorized signatory of the company is great evidence of your experience. If you don't have that, uh, the USAS will also usually accept coworker affidavits as well as other secondary evidence, and we'll discuss that a little later on today. Um, with the ability to pay evidence, primary evidence of the company's ability to pay does include the most recent tax returns, um, also audited financial statements or annual reports. Also, if you have a company that has more than 100 employees, you can get a letter from your CFO or another um, financial executive of your company attesting the fact that the company does have the money to pay uh, the proffered wage on the I-140 petition. Some secondary evidence that you can include if you don't have any of the primary, your primary is not really strong evidence, um, can be uh, W-2s that you pay, for, pay to the employee, um, bank statements, profit and loss statements, personnel records, et cetera. So um, obviously you wanna try to hit the big ones, the primary ones, and then if you can't, or, or if your uh, Billy pay uh, argument is, is not as strong, you might want to include the, the secondary or additional evidence. Um, and just keep in mind that USCIS does look at net income or net current assets to determine your ability to pay for the company. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, Kevin, did you want to say something? Yeah, just to take a step back, I just want to make sure that we were clear on what the actual requirement is. So the company, in order to show that the company is a bona fide employer, needs to show ability to pay the required wage listed on the, on the labor certification from the priority date, which is the date the labor is filed, until the green card is ultimately approved. Of course, after the green card is approved and the beneficiary reports to work for the future green card job, the company needs to actually start paying the full preva uh, prevailing wage at that time. Uh, but the ability to pay obligation runs from the priority date until ultimately the adjudication of the I-45 at the very last stage. Thank you. 
That is an important point uh, to make about the ability to pay being for the entire time from the day of filing the labor certification or the I-140, the, the establishment of the priority date uh, until the date the green card is approved. Now, a lot of the issues that we've been seeing are dealing with the RFEs dealing with education. And uh, we've been seeing RFEs particularly where the individual does not presumably have the U.S. equivalent of the four-year degree or the foreign degrees, for example, a three-year degree or a three plus one, a three plus two. As in India, you have a three-year BSc degree and then a two-year MSc degree or three-year BCom, two-year MCom, etc. Um, and so there's a whole issue that comes up about being properly educated, meaning qualifying with the minimum of the bachelor's degree or the foreign equivalent. And when using a combination of degrees, we are trying to equate it to the required education for the position per the PERM labor certification process. So, Kevin, what are the kinds of, you know, really this is sort of the tip of the iceberg. We have all kinds of problems that crop up with this issue. So what are the kinds of issues that you guys are seeing in processing in, in the multi-law firms green card department? Right, Sheila. Well, education equivalency is, is, a, is a large chunk of, of this. Uh, the issue is how the education is established in the labor. Uh, at the I-140 stage, the company needs to demonstrate that the beneficiary has the education as it was established within the confines of that very, you know, strict 9089 form. And quite often, you know, a, a beneficiary who has uh, particularly like a, a three-year degree, bachelor's degree from uh, India, for example, that in and of itself, according to USCIS, is not considered to be the equivalent of a four-year bachelor's degree. Um, generally speaking, a combination of, of degrees used to qualify to meet the education requirement uh, isn't enough to actually, you know, meet the, what's required for the I-140. The when you know, as a lot of uh, listeners know, the the I one forty how it's filed, particularly for Indian, Mexican, uh, Filipino, and Chinese nationals, uh, really dictates how long they'll be waiting for a green card. Um, of course, the EB two classification is really what most uh, you know the the foreign nationals covet because of the quicker turnaround time. But for cases where someone uh, has a degree or education that requires less than two years or about two years of uh, overall experience, those petitions are filed in the EB-3 skilled worker category. Um, but again, it really depends on how the labor is structured to determine whether or not this is going to even work at the I-140 stage. Um, generally speaking, different countries have different degree programs and, you know, USCIS will accept a three-year bachelor's degree from the United Kingdom to be equal to a U.S. four-year U.S. bachelor's degree. But as mentioned before, the three-year Indian degree doesn't uh, get the same kind of uh, treatment. Uh, so in all cases, whenever somebody has a foreign degree or several foreign degrees, uh, a credentials evaluation needs to be obtained, uh, sometimes uh, probably by ACRO, which is the evaluator that USCIS tends to give the most weight towards, uh, to make sure that the person actually qualifies for whatever this uh, classification is that's being sought. Um, I, just w one last thing, I could say that uh, generally speaking, we've seen cases where uh, like a bachelor's in engineering from India is a four-year degree and that's considered to be fine. Um, situations where people have a three-year bachelor's followed by a two-year master's We've been successful in making the argument, well, that ultimately equates to a bachelor's degree as long as that person has five years of progressive experience after the bachelor's degree and the labor required a bachelor's in five, they may be able to qualify for the for the EB2 level type of position. 
it's a case-by-case analysis, though. Right. Okay, uh, great. Uh. Right. Oh, I just want to bring up one other example. Um, well, two things. With the three-year bachelor's degree in India versus just, say, UK, um, the USCIS really looks at the number of years of education that the individual has had before that. So um, with the three-year UK degrees, they generally used to have um, an extra degree of high school, I guess we would call it here in the US, and therefore a three-year degree would be able to equate to a U.S. degree in terms of the... Was that because the high the school is instead of 12 years, 13 they years? Yeah, 13 years, right. So they had the 13th year was kind of, was university level education. I know Canada used to use that too before. They followed the U.K. method, but now Canada switched to the U.S. you know, the U.S. method with the four-year bachelor's degree. Um, an example of that kind of importance of uh, work within the classroom and education is, uh, for example, some people have a certification from the Institute of Cost and Works Accountants of India, which is a professional accountancy body in India. Um, you know, that it's a great or it's a great institute, it's a great um, organization. You know, the 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 education that the individual gets there is, you know, really uh, highly coveted perhaps in India, but for the USCIS purposes, because you get an ICWAI certification based on three-level exams and also three years of practical training, the USCIS has, as we've seen in recent RFEs, argued that that would not equate to a U.S. bachelor's degree. Okay, thank you very much. And I think there were two quick points What from what Kevin was explaining uh, that I thought were extremely, extremely important in this equation, that we can't really talk about the I-140, uh, obviously, without understanding the entire context of where it fits into the green card process uh, itself. But most important, that the ELSE labor certification or the PERM is really like the foundation of the house, because if your labor certification is somehow incomplete or incorrect, you're going to find that the structure that you build on top of that is going to crumble and fall if your PERM an ETA 9089 is, is weak or wobbly. Um, and I think people sometimes, uh, for example, employers and employees will come to us at the multi-law firm and say, my attorney has messed up or some mistakes happened or my company tried to do it in-house and it's been done wrong, but can you now try to right this wrong and make everything go away and solve all my problems by filing the I-140 properly so that the case can get approved? And usually, in, in, I would say, 95 out of 100 times, it's probably very, very difficult to change something that was placed or put incorrectly into the system because your foundation is weak. And then, uh, briefly, Kevin touched upon the whole EB3 and EB2 issue. Of course, as an employer, I tell people, you are signing documents under penalty of perjury. You need to be careful that you're not just pandering or allowing the tail to wag the dog where the employee is demanding an EB2, even though the candidate uh, may have EB2 qualifications if the job, the minimum job requirements, the salary and other factors really mean that it is an EB3 position, then we need to have an EB3 application filed. Uh, and you as the employer needs to be very careful and mindful of that issue. Uh, Jessica, can we go on to the ability to pay issue for the company? What are the factors and recent adjudication trends? Sure, that um, absolutely. Um, with ability to pay, you do need to, as Kevin mentioned before, show that the company has the money to pay the beneficiary from the time the labor certification was filed until they become U.S. permanent residents. However, keep in mind that uh, 
you also, you as the employer, also need to be able to prove the ability to pay for all the beneficiaries that you have sponsored. And that's something that we've seen recently with um, adjudication trends within the USCIS. The USCIS will actually issue RFEs to employers that have multiple I-140 petitions uh, filed and or pending or even approved to say, okay, you know, maybe you can sponsor this one person that you're filing for now, but show us that you have the money to sponsor and to pay for all the multiple beneficiaries that you have filed for. So the employer's responsibility to prove ability to pay becomes cumulative. So good practice tip that we um, at the, here at the Murthy Law Firm do work with our um, employer companies to do is to keep track of the number of beneficia uh, beneficiaries that you have sponsored, what their prevailing wages are, what you have been paying those beneficiaries, um, and make sure that your finances cover the gap between what you've been paying them and what you've said that you would pay them when their green card gets approved um, f and they're working on the sponsored in, in the sponsored position on the I-140 petition. And when you say finances cover the gap, you mean that the net profits or the adjusted yeah. gross income. Right. So the USAS, like I mentioned before, they do look at net current assets or net income. So it's not com you know a combination of two. the two. It's either one or the other. So um, the idea is that you, know, you might have a lot of assets as a company, but they might be all tied up. And if those assets aren't you know, liquidable, um, you're not going to, the USCIS doesn't consider those assets um, to be able to be used to pay individuals. So therefore, they look at net income. They look at net current assets, not all your assets altogether. Um, another good but the much safer rule is the net income as opposed yes. to assets. Assets is still yeah. a much weaker argument. Right. I mean, and, and the thing is, when you're sponsoring for all these individuals, you know, you as the employer have the responsibility to make sure that these I-140 petitions are viable. So if you know that you can't necessarily afford, you know, 10, 20, 30 um, to, to, to sponsor all these individuals, you might have to, you know, really pick and choose who you will be able to sponsor. Um, you know, or certainly or, in, in, in phases. Right, or in phases, definitely. Um, another good practice tip is to withdraw I-140 petitions as needed. So if the employee has left the company and you don't have the intention of bringing them back and they really don't have the intention of coming back to work for you, you know, it's a good, it's a good practice to withdraw those I-140s because if that job is no longer valid and you have that I-140 still pending or still approved with the USCIS, then you as the employer are still responsible to show the ability to pay for that petition. So again, you know, if you withdraw the I-140s that you no longer need, that'll also help you kind of minimize the uh, the responsibility you have in terms of ability to pay uh, cumulatively for all your sponsored beneficiaries. Wonderful. Okay. Uh, again, it's not absolutely mandatory or required for the employer to withdraw the I-140 petition. It just makes sense, particularly in borderline cases where there's financial issues um, or you're just, you know, you think you're going to be going getting through with the through the skin of your teeth so to speak then you might want to consider it more because a lot of times people say well why should i what if i decide in the future i want to bring this employee back what if i want to keep that option open well then don't withdraw it but remember that that could be taken into account when the uscis issues an rfe and decides to maybe potentially deny yes, an i-140 for an important valuable employee at your company which could cost you as an employer cost us more in the long run. It's definitely a hard choice, but like Sheila said, you know, if it's if it's a choice between getting this case denied and then also opening yourself up uh, potentially for the USCIS to start looking at your other I-140s, even if they've been approved, to see if you have ability to pay, perhaps withdrawing is a good idea. So. Okay. And um, Kevin, what are the financial documents that they could use as evidence? 
Uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, those are definitely great strategies, but taking a step back, we just wanted to, you know, identify what are the actual documents that you file as evidence along with the uh, initial filing of the I-140 petition to show ability to pay. So, at the time of the filing of the I-140, uh, generally speaking, federal tax returns, audited financial statements, or perhaps annual reports would be accepted, uh, acceptable primary evidence of the company's ability to pay. Uh, depending on how the entity, the, the petitioner is structured, uh, you know, there are small employers, large employers, uh, they can be structured as uh, private or public uh, um, companies. So uh, these would all be valid forms of proof and uh, the financials really should be the documents from the priority date up until the filing of the I-140. So if uh, it takes a long time to get that labor approved and a couple years have passed uh, until you're able to file the I-140, all financials for all of those uh, years need to be included with the filing. And a lot of people always say, but isn't the green card based on a future job offer? So I don't have the money today. I've been having a couple of rough years. The economy's been behaving a little wobbly, but I definitely plan to have tons of money and I'm, things are already looking up and up. And the answer is not going to work. It's because it's from the day the labor was filed or the I-140 was filed from the day the priority date was established for the case that the employer needs to be able to show the tax returns and the ability to pay the entire base salary. And if it's based on a future job, then you're not just talking the difference between the W-2 wage and what the person should be paid according to the Department of Labor, but rather the entire 100% of that person's wage needs to be shown in the adjusted gross income. And Sheila, I have to kind of brag about our law firm for a second. Um, we have had cases where, due to the economy, because everyone's you know taken a hit the last few years, where we've shown that the company has really been doing well, but for probably the last year, last two years, but we show also, we provide evidence that there is recovery and that the uh, company can expect to, you know, make that money again and have the ability to pay. Um, we've been able to win those cases too. But I'm not going to tell, sit here and tell everyone that that is the, the tried and true what you should be doing, what you can rely on, because that's really something that is a case by case basis. And we'd have to craft that argument for Very them. good point. Yeah. Thank you for sharing, uh, Jessica. Uh, so, can you give us a little bit about the, what kind of secondary evidence can be included in such cases? Sure. Again, um, I, I had mentioned before the profit and loss statements for the company, and of course these are different than the audited financial statements or annual reports, which are mainly those big yearly reports. But you know, when you're kind of within the year or during the half year, profit and loss statements can help. Bank statements showing that you know the company has liquidable cash in their bank accounts, that really definitely helps. Um, also lines of credit that a company may have, um, and, and a letter from your creditor with the amount uh, is definitely good evidence to show for secondary evidence. Also, capital infusions into the company. So if you have any venture capitalists or any any capital money that you're getting on a regular basis, proof of that as well can help um, with, with showing the company has ability to pay, that the company can clearly fund the wage that they're saying that they're going to be paying. Um, and again, failing to be able to pay the, the offered wage can reflect poorly on the company's ability or intention to pay the prevailing wage um, when the benef beneficiary obtains his permanent residence. So it goes back to what Kevin was saying, and Sheila had said in the, in, in the past, that this is a future job, but for example, if you're sponsoring someone for a software engineer in your company and they're actually working in, as a software engineer and you're saying that you're going to be paying him 150 grand, but right now you're paying him 60, that also does raise a red flag to USCIS to say, hey, is this an actual wage that you're actually paying your software engineers? And if it is, why aren't you paying him that higher wage now? 
So that can also go to ability right. To I guess pay. the whole believable factor right. because with somebody's salary truly be able to increase, where you're saying, well, you need a minimum of a master's degree plus five years or seven years or three years or whatever experience, and we wouldn't touch this person unless they're heading up this entire team of engineers and whatever. Well, how come then the person's willing to settle, and is it really realistic that on the day of the green card, magically the person's salary is going to more than double or quadruple or two and a half times the amount? So with respect to the evidence to, ex to show the evidence of the person, most of us know that the best evidence is the letter from the prior employer on the employer's letterhead, company letterhead, which includes hopefully the company's you know physical address, the website address, all that phone fax, all that stuff, uh, which is signed by the authorized company representative, confirming the name of the employee, the date of dates of employment, the title and job duties. Kevin, what are the other kinds of secondary evidence that might be available or acceptable? in case the prior employer's work experience letter is not available because the company is shut down or the or the prior company is in a, on bad terms and refuses, how can the new company that's sponsoring the application try to obtain this information when filing the new I-140? Uh, well, Sheila, uh, the beneficiary definitely needs to show that he has he or she has the experience required for the position that's set forth in the labor. And as you had mentioned, you know, sometimes employers are either unwilling or unable, previous employers unwilling or unable to provide uh, the, the primary evidence, which is the experience letter containing all of that information. Uh, the regulations permit uh, the, comp the beneficiary to provide secondary evidence, which would include two co-worker affidavits, uh, along with a self-affidavit from the beneficiary identifying why they were not able to get the primary evidence. Uh, the affidavits should definitely be notarized. They should still contain all of the information that you describe, who the employer was, uh, the dates of the employment that the individual, the coworker, can personally attest to. So basically that would just be the time that the coworker was working with the beneficiary and the information about the job and the job duties. Uh, one of the trends we've seen is uh, situations where USCIS is not accepting, uh, I'll call them written statements from employees, perhaps because they weren't notarized. They're saying, well, this is just a letter from one of your friends. This isn't evidence of your, of your work experience. So what we need to make sure is that they're, they're actually affidavits notarized and that uh, there's a regulation on, on providing secondary evidence. So if you meet all of the requirements of the regulation, it'd be really difficult for USCIS to argue and say, well, this isn't acceptable. Wonderful. Okay. Uh, Jess, um, any thoughts that you have with respect to, you know, if there's an investigation, what kinds of issues, you know, where we see that if the beneficiary has worked for a particular company in the past uh, and the company is being investigated, right. then the USCIS is more likely to want to get more neutral secondary evidence. Right. And that makes sense because if you're co if the previous company you've worked for in the past um, is under investigation that obviously by the USCIS or the Department of Labor that obviously means that the government is not trusting what the company is saying. So if you just provide the standard employer letters for those companies, the USCIS could actually not believe them and they'll want secondary evidence. So if you know that you work for a company in the past who has been or is being investigated by the USCIS, um, you really should look for, to, you know, look to get those coworker affidavits and also secondary evidence such as your, you know, W-2s, pay stubs, um, any other forms of experience, experience evidence that you have, uh, that Kevin had mentioned previously, but also that you have to, to kind of help uh, 
help prove the story or help prove the the point of the employer letter that you actually did work for that company. Okay, thank you. And so we've also been seeing more recently the whole issue of I-140 RFEs that get into and delve into the issue of the employer-employee relationship, the right of control, like what we've been seeing with respect to H-1B processing. Uh, can you give any kinds of examples yeah. that we've been dealing with, Jessica, success stories that we've had here at the Murthy Law Firm and how this sort of has been playing out? Yes, it's actually very interesting RFEs that we're, we're getting lately um, where within the I-140 petition, the USCIS is asking about employer-employee em, employer control. And if some of you guys that do H-1Bs, you, I'm sure this sounds familiar to you because it's basically a requirement uh, in H-1B petitions. And now we're seeing them in the, in the I-140s. Uh, Sheila, I have to say that I'm really proud that our law firm has received some of these RFEs and we've challenged them and also have won. Um, so I'm really happy about that. Um, but you do need to make sure that you are able to show that the, that the employer and employee does have a true employment relationship. So it does go back to your H-1B basics, such as does the employer supervise and monitor the work of the beneficiary, even if they're working for the company at a client site? Um, do you have that H-1B approval notice and the LCAs that cover where the, the employee is actually working and making sure that the employee is working where they're supposed to be working per the LCA? Um, you know, does the company maintain policies and procedures that uh, where the the employee has to check in and maybe check in with a supervisor or have a, a regular work review. Things like that that go back, harken back to the H-1B petition, that's something that we're seeing now for the I-140 petitions. So it's, it's very crazy. interesting. It's interesting. Kevin? Yeah. yeah, and I also just want to say, um, I mean, really as, as with respect to all of these issues, the, the standard of proof is something that we need to come back every now and again and remember that the, the standard of proof here is preponderance of the evidence. So is it 51% or more likely that uh, whatever it is that is being you know indicated based on the evidence is actually true? So it's a great idea to document all of this stuff as much as possible, practically speaking, but also as a strategic matter, we need to stop every now and again and think about what the actual uh, evidentiary uh, standard is that, uh, that we're trying to overcome. And for those who are not lawyers in this uh, in this to, in today's teleconference, what Kevin is basically saying is that, as most of you know from watching TV or movies, in a criminal case, you have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that in fact the person who is being prosecuted did commit the crime. So that's the highest, most difficult standard for the government to meet, to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. The second in quasi-criminal proceedings, like fraud, misrepresentation, etc., the, the government has to prove that the employer or the employee or the person who is being investigated has in fact committed the particular act of fraud, misrepresentation, etc., by clear and convincing evidence. So that's a mid-level proof. The lowest level is in a civil proceeding, which is just a preponderance of the evidence, which means more likely than not, as Kevin just explained. So that was wonderful that you brought that out because I think most people, companies and businesses, when they're looking at it, think, oh my God, I have to prove it. I can't. I don't have every piece of evidence under the face of this earth. Well, we don't have to. And we've challenged the government routinely when they have tried to hold us to standards that are against what the law, the regulations, the basic principles uh, in terms of in a non-criminal setting, in a private setting where it's a regular case that they only is a requirement to establish by a preponderance of the evidence standard. We're always extremely respectful and mindful of the time frames because we know that all of you are keeping 
uh, time uh, and like us to limit ourselves between 30 to 45 minutes and we're right on target around 35 minutes so thank you once again for being participating in today's Murthy Law Firm teleconference call on I-140 petitions strategies and trends hope you got some great fantastic ideas from my wonderful panel of Jessica Lee and Kevin Andrews so that you can better prepare and understand the nuances and the complexities of the I-140 process. Plan and hire a fantastic law firm like the Murthy Law Firm to guide you and mentor you and make your foundation rock solid with the labor certification filing, then the I-140, and that way the 485 will hopefully, barring any unforeseen uh, eventualities or for unforeseen incidents, actually go through. Thank you for being a part of our family here of the Murthy Law Firm. We look forward to continuing to guide and help you. Have a great day.